Hey everyone, welcome to part two of um, a recording that I did with my good friend Chris Lenore as we are teaching a theology class at our church. For more of an explanation of what's going on here, uh, you can check the intro to last week's episode. But essentially, I'm still kind of struggling with uh, brain fog and fatigue um, and my, my thinking being impaired after recovering from COVID. And so this is kind of a two birds, one stone situation where I got together and recorded a class in a podcast type setting where we're just having a conversation because we weren't able to teach live. And so I figured uh, it's a great conversation, I think, just content wise. Uh, it was enjoyable to be able to get together with Chris and just kind of talk about this topic. And so... Again, just like with last week, if you would like to actually see the uh, notes and the slides that we are referencing in this discussion, I will put a link down in the show notes to Chris's YouTube channel, and you can check it out there. So now we're going to do arguments for sola scriptura. So we've kind of uh, exhausted sola ecclesia. Now, why should somebody believe in sola scriptura, right? Yeah. That's the whole point of this. It's, it's the big one. I mean, this is what we would say is the proper viewpoints. We want to understand why it is that we say it from the pulpit, um, in, in the discussions we have and things like that. Yeah, it was it was one of the major battle cries actually of the Reformation. Yes. And for the last five hundred years, most Protestants have held to sola scriptura. But we will see an alternative view, solo scriptura, which is it's devolving into, which would absolutely not be the same thing. Yeah. And we need to define those two. But sola with an A uh, sola Scriptura is where we're going to defend right now and argue for why we should follow this. Um, so why don't you kick us... Well, actually, you're taking a drink. I'll kick us off. The Scripture implicitly and explicitly speaks of its sufficiency. Um, so sufficiency, that's the idea where we say, hey, the Word of God is, uh, for our every, is sufficient for all our faith and practice. Right? It's our final authority, is like we like to say. And that has to deal with its sufficiency. And so I think so I think a good a good foundation to lay with that is that you know we talked earlier about how you know we can't use the Bible to go to the voting booths. Well, we can. Mm -hmm. It can give us principles. It can give us guidance to understand what is good and and how we can honor God with our vote, how we raise our kids, what TV shows we watch. The Bible doesn't have a table of contents that may lead us to say yes or no, but it gives us the wisdom needed through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can understand truth that that God has revealed and then apply that to our current circumstances. So that's what, that's what we mean by sufficiency. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see an example of this in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy uh, that, uh, but you continue in the things that you learned and become, became convinced of it, knowing that from whom you learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, this would be the scriptures, speaking specifically of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. uh, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So in other words, the idea was that Timothy could find salvation by reading the Old Testament scriptures and then being explained to him about how Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament promises because yeah. he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is it sufficient for salvation, but he continues in verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed, or in some translations, that's where we get our word inspired from. But literally, God-breathed means it's coming from God. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be equipped, uh, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So in other words, the scriptures are able to equip us to be sufficient 
for every good work we would do in life. So, so a good work, would, the idea would be if we're, if we're living in faith of God, living to glorify him and doing good in every aspect of our lives, whether it be in that voting booth you talked about, whether it be sitting down to have a meal, raising our children, watching TV or doing other leisure activities, those are good works if we're doing them to the glory of God. Amen. But how do we do that? We have to be informed by scripture. Right? Yeah. Now, so the, the um, you know, someone might look at that and say, well, but you just said he was talking about Old Testament. So how, how can we know that, we're, that the New Testament is would also be considered scripture? Well, Second Peter 3.16, that is where Peter is saying that people are twisting Paul's words as they do with the rest of Scripture. In other words, Peter is putting the writings of Paul as an apostle on the same level as these Old Testament Scripture writings that they often referenced. So we know that we can trust the Old Testament and the New Testament equally because God himself has inspired the writers to, to um, equate them in that way. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because one of the things we're going to have to answer in a future class is, you know, how do we know we have the right books? Because if we don't, if we can't trust we have the right books, then there's always going to be that question, well, what about this book I keep hearing about? Mm-hmm. Or, or what if this book really isn't, shouldn't be in there? Yeah. We got to answer that question later on. But right now we're just taking for face value. Old Testament, New Testament, um, as, as we know it now in most of our Bibles. So three things this passage teaches. Uh, scriptures are sufficient for salvation, like we pointed out. The scriptures are sufficient for your sanctification in every area of life. And scriptures are uniquely God-breathed, uh, where tradition has never given this designation or any other similar designation in any way, shape, or form. Only the scriptures are said to be God-breathed. We will not go through Psalm 119 right now. Oh, but it's such a short John. It's a, well, it's the longest <laughs> chapter in the Bible. But, but basically, Psalm 119, even in the Old Testament, makes the case again and again and again of what scriptures can answer to. In my biblical counseling class I teach, I actually go through a good chunk of Psalm 119 to drive home the point that all we, what we really need is the Word of God as our final authority because it answers all sorts of questions for us of practical living in Psalm 119 of why we need it. And so if, you've, if you're out there listening, you're watching this class, then please go read Psalm 119, keeping in mind what can the Scriptures do for me? And not just as a self-help book, but, but what can it answer for me and how I'm supposed to live out my faith? Yeah. So, and then you can see here in Acts 17, 10 through 11, uh, and the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word of great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So let's get some context here, because by itself, this doesn't make a lot of sense. But, yeah. but, but you have this idea is that Paul and Silas, they go to Berea, and they're preaching Jesus, Right? And so there's Jews there at the synagogue who only have the Old Testament and only know of the Old Testament. And they're saying, hey, there's this guy named Jesus who is your Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And being, you know, noble-minded, as it says here in the passage, they actually pull out their Old Testament scriptures, unravel the scrolls, start pouring through it. Because they're like, is what Paul and Silas are saying, is that really true? Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so you see this perfect blend here of this idea that... that uh, the scriptures are able to help make them wise unto salvation. And it's what Paul and Silas were even using to preach the gospel with at that time. Yeah. And, and the, the funny thing is, is if you, um, you know, go back before and see, you know, cause he says they were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. Um, uh, Paul and Silas had gone to Thessalonica 
preached the gospel, and the Jews revolted and threw them out because they were threatening their tradition. So no one was opening their scriptures to see if what they said were true. They just said, no, that doesn't sound right because that goes against our traditions. And and their lives were in danger because of that. And it's this, this really you know hilarious balance based on our current conversation of those who seek God's word as their primary source of truth and compare everything else to it are praised in God's word. And that's that's the model that we want to follow. We don't want to trust anything that anyone says without holding it up to God's word first. Yep. So, so scripture, sola scriptura, we're making a case for it. For number two here, ready? Go for it. All right, so scripture explicitly states that no one is to add or take away from the word of God. These warnings would be completely meaningless if there was not some objective way for one to judge if he or she was actually adding to God's word, since unwritten tradition is by nature beyond this type of examination. These commands are warnings against traditions that add to the complete and sufficient word of God. It only makes sense if the scriptures were sufficient and complete. So real quick here. Are you saying then that maybe Roman Catholic, just this tradition, might be adding to the word of God? Uh, if they are saying that God has said where God has not said, that's exactly what adding to God's word is. So even today then, as Protestants who would say we don't believe in that, that sacred tradition the Roman Catholics have, if we have a tradition that isn't found in Scripture and we're holding it up to the same level, are we adding the Scripture? We are. Wow. Well, well let's share some verses. Let's get to that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you. So here, God is very plainly saying that he has given commandments. He has a way of things that he wants them to be, and he has things he doesn't want us to do. And for us as people to add to it and say, oh, well, God also wants us to do this. Or, I know God has said this, but we, we can change that. That's outdated. We don't have to do that anymore. God is specifically commanding against that. Now, obviously, we need to keep that in light of you know, living under the law versus living under grace. But even still, the things that God has revealed in the New Testament and the things that are still true from the Old Testament... We don't want to add to anything God has said, nor do we want to say, oh, we can safely ignore this because it's more convenient for our lives. God has specifically said, do not do that. Mm. And even in Revelation, we have a warning as well. Uh, I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part in the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So in other words, people who are guilty of adding or taking away from the word of God here, at least with Revelation, and, and, and some even believe this extends to the whole of Scripture, because this is like the last book written, and it's one of the very last verses in there, um, that you know they, they may be in danger of not truly being saved. They're ones who are actually taking the Scriptures and twisting it for their own uh, benefit. Yeah, and not that it... It forfeits your salvation, but no. you could not do that if you had the Spirit of God living in you, active. That's, yeah. that's the point. I don't understand people who, who are just so flippant with the Word of God, because as somebody who, who preaches, teaches, and explains the Word of God on a regular basis, I'm always just overwhelmed with this, this sense of, like, I better do a good job. Oh, yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, even in what James, it warns that not everyone should be teachers because you're held to that standard. Oh, yeah. Like, it's we need to treasure the Word of God and even be... Uh, in awe of it in such a way that we don't want to risk messing it up or being, like you said, flippant with it. Yeah. And that's how much it should mean to us. Yeah. So um, 
Well, uh, concerning the sufficiency of Scripture, the Westminster Catechism says this, and, and, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is just one of those documents that was written by the Protestants to kind of say, hey, this is, this is how we're understanding sola scriptura. They said the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, so in other words, they're being exhausted. It covers everything. Is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. You know, type thing. So it's kind of one of those things, you look at different traditions that, that different Protestant churches that come along, uh, Baptists, for instance, they're one of the denominations that are known for no drinking, no alcohol at all. In fact, we oftentimes they get made fun of because they have grape juice instead mm-hmm. of wine for <laughs> communion, right? Well, you know, that's, does the Bible say never the drink? No. Well, no. Paul says to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. It does warn very heavily, though. Do not get drunk. Yeah. Do not be drunk with wine, uh, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, so be, and it talks about in Proverbs that a foolish person takes on strong drink and gets drunk and leads to all sorts of things. But by no means does it say that. But, but when we add that extra layer of tradition, we're almost adding the scripture. And yeah. we better be very careful not to do that. Uh, you might say, as a, as a church, we are covenanting together, but we will not drink. That's fine. But don't force that on other people. Yeah. Again, it's not saying that God has spoken where he hasn't spoken. There's practicalities that you can get out of it, but that is on a whole different level from saying, thus saith the Lord. Yeah, it's important because sometimes even in our lives, you know, the word of God says, don't do this, but we know our own temptations. And, and the Bible says we need to flee from those. So if we need to put a couple extra layers of protection for us personally, mm-hmm. I think that's fine. Or even in the culture itself. Oh, yeah. As a sense of, of practicalness. Uh, but let's not put it on the same level of scripture and enforce it on other people. Uh, number three, right? All right, so if the Roman pontiff, the vicar of Christ, or the magisterium is going to speak on behalf of Christ, being successors to the apostles' offices, authority, and infallibility, they must show signs of the one who speaks for God as prescribed in Scripture. In other words, to speak on behalf of God is to essentially be a prophet. If you're going to claim the, the authority of a prophet, you need to show the signs that prove you're a prophet. Mm. And that runs into a lot of issues today and all throughout history for anyone who says they speak on behalf of God. So real quick, I want to back up to that vicar of Christ comment, right? Because we've never used this word in this class before, even in this session. And so really what that's basically saying is the Pope is the earthly uh, representative for Christ Mm -hmm. on earth. That's why he can say anything and, and, and it's bound on heaven and heaven as it is on earth. Yeah, And it's much more than we as Christians being representatives of, of the kingdom of God. It is a specific, what he says is as if Christ himself is saying. Yeah, because Scripture says we're ambassadors. Yeah. So we're, we're his messengers. So we're only going to say what he says. Mm-hmm. The Pope has the ability to say something new. New, yes. <laughs> so let's get some scriptures. Why is this so dangerous, Ray? All right, so Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Now you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which Yahweh has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So to really summarize this, what it's saying is that if a prophet is coming and saying that he represents me, everything he says that I have spoken should come true. Because... 
for God is for someone to say, "Oh, God has said this," but then God not to fulfill it is to make God a liar. It's to make God weak. It is to essentially take God's name in vain. Mm. And the seriousness of that in the Old Testament was so much so that God wasn't playing around. He said, "Kill them if they claim to represent me," and clearly don't. Wow. And no one, no one anywhere, whether in the Roman Catholic Church or, or in any denomination, no one wants to be held to that standard. Now, obviously, that's not binding on us today, but no one would be willing to take their role as prophet or representative of Christ so seriously that they would put their literal lives on the line and be willing to be proven wrong because they can't speak without authority and they know it. Yeah. Can't help but to think sometimes if we did stone a few people, we'd get rid of a lot of nonsense in Christianity. It, it, yeah, that would be a thing, but <laughs> but we're not going to do yes, that because for, for the FBI listening to this on YouTube, we are not speaking seriously. <laughs> no, we are not. All in jest. So there is a lot of shenanigans out there, though that's for sure. Uh, even in the even in the New Testament, you know, Paul says in Second Corinthians twelve twelve, the signs of a true apostle were worked out among you with all perseverance. By signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, well, Paul is saying, how did you know he was an apostle? How did you know the other apostles were truly apostles and not frauds and fakes? Because they did signs and wonders and miracles. They proved their office of an apostle and the ability to speak for God. So if someone's claiming to be an apostle today, what should we? What are just some easy signs we should expect them to perform that would be impossible without the power of God behind them? Well, if you just want to take Paul as an example, he brought people back to life, raised them from the dead, he got bit by a poisonous viper and just shrugged it off like nothing happened and, and it amazed people. Uh, they, they healed people. And I'm not talking straightening a leg. I mean, they took people who were lame, had physical deformities, and watched those limbs grow and regenerate. Uh, almost like in the science fiction movie you would see today. Yeah. Right? And so there's nobody doing that. There's people who say they do, but there's no evidence of it. Um, and a lot of the things you're seeing is mental illness healing, or people getting out of wheelchairs, which is very suspect because, you know, there's you can just go on YouTube and see testimonies of people who go to different events like a, a Benny Hinn or other, you know, people who say they can do these things trying to seek healing, but they can never get anywhere near in the door. And they literally have problems. Yeah. Not to mention, you also have a times where the apostles would go places and heal everybody who came to them. Didn't turn anybody away. Um, and, you know, if we really do have these people, why are they walking in the hospitals? Why, why was COVID such a big yeah, deal? Yeah, I mean, especially in our culture right now, you know, suddenly everyone was real quiet about their healing yeah, capabilities. It, it's really funny. One of the most prominent churches that actually has a, a school for healing uh, in Southern California, uh, there are pictures of them having to close because of COVID. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So there are no apostles today or anybody who has that authority. It, it's, uh, it seems to be, it's a nice story, but once you start to peel back what is required, it's just not there for anybody. Um, four, the scriptures speak explicitly against the traditions of men as misleading and often in opposition to God's written word. Therefore, all traditions must submit to scripture. And, and Ray, you already did a good job of discussing that. But you can see Jesus explaining this here in Matthew 5, 15, 2 through 6. He says, Why do your disciples, the Pharisees, come to Jesus and say, Break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Notice, not the scriptures, but he, they specifically say, The tradition of the elders. These are man-made traditions. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So Jesus turns it back on them. Well, you're forsaking the commandments of God, not the traditions of elders yeah he says for god said honor your father and mother and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death 
Uh, but you say, Jesus says, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So, so what the Pharisees, they had this tradition where they could, they could nuance, get around the word of God by saying, listen, I'm going to go give money to the temple or to the poor. And that money was what I would have used for my mother and father to take care of them. But I already used it for something else mm-hmm. uh, or, or various things like that. And so they're finding a loophole. Um, now, this may sound like, oh, I never do that. But as Christians, we do that all the time. In fact, I guarantee there's probably, everybody who's going to be listening to this probably has something they've done this with currently or have or aren't even aware of it, right? Yes. Uh, you know, my, fam- my favorite ones is saying, well, I don't give to the church, my local church because I give to this charity. Well, that's the exact same concept of yeah. the trade. And it's all to God. I mean, that's, there's, there's a logical justification. And just like the Pharisees, we can try to argue it from scripture a little bit and get around it but ultimately we aren't wanting to be beholden to god's word we want to do what we want to do absolutely number five ray all right so the early and are the early and early medieval church supported an unarticulated and undeveloped doctrine of sola scriptura so you know as we kind of talked about um the idea of sola scriptura wasn't just somehow unique to the protestant reformation it had always been there it just never had to be formulated until it had to be formulated. It, it was under such attack from the Roman Catholic Church in that day that that's when they finally had to really dig into it. Yeah, we're not going to read through. We have a lot of quotes here, but we have Irenaeus in 150 AD. Uh, you have Clement of Alexandria in 215. Um, you have Gregory of Nyssa uh, in 395. It says, let the inspired scriptures then be our umpire, and the vote of truth will be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. In other words, he's basically saying there, the scripture is our umpire, and it declares what tradition is valid and which tradition is not valid. Yeah. It's calling the shots. Is it strikes, fouls, whatever the case might be. So, And, and the, the important thing with these quotes is they're good to read because you know, we don't want to say, oh, well, because these men said them, it's true. But we can see that, um, you know, as we talked about with that chart I mean, way back in the beginning, how you had the apostles, and then you had people who were disciples to the apostles. And then you had people who were disciples to them. And these are these early church fathers who were passing on this idea of how sacred scripture was and how it was our, our final authority in all things. So we can see all throughout church history, even those who came very shortly after the apostles, affirming this idea that scripture is 100% sufficient as all we need. I mean, 329 to 379, Basil the Great has one. I mean, you have Ambrose in 340 to 397. St. Augustine, 354, 430, he's a, that's a big person that Roman Catholics even like to quote all the time. <laughs> um, he says, Neither dare one agree with Catholic bishops, if by chance they err in anything, but the result that their opinion is against canonical scriptures of God. In other words, don't argue with them unless they're taking a view that's opposed to God. Yeah. In fact, he's, so he's saying argue with them if they're not in line with scripture. Um, Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274, for our faith rests on the revelation made to the prophets and apostles who wrote the canonical books. So in the New Testament is what he's getting at in the Old Testament. So quite a bit going there. Now, some would come along and say, hey, but this doctrine of scripture, the sola scripture, it didn't come along until the 16th century, Mm -hmm. 1600 years. So maybe we shouldn't trust it. Well, we just saw the quotes from the church fathers who were saying basically the same thing, right? But... It's important to note that if you look at a lot of these different doctrines, the doctrine of man and grace is 5th century, 500 years. 
the doctrine of Christ, 400 years after, the Trinity, 300 years after, atonement, 1100 years, justification is the 16th century. A lot of these doctrines where we formalize and articulate them as well as we can quote them today came from because there was these heresies that got introduced into the church and the church had to fight back and they had to clarify their position as the scriptures teach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and we still do the same thing today. In the 20th and 21st century, we're articulating our position on abortion, homosexuality, LGBTQ issues all the time. Even even cloning. I mean, we there's things that are happening that we're seeing in our world, but people are trying to say, well, what about this and what about that? And we have to come now come together as a church and say, this is how we talk about it. This is how we answer it. Yeah. And that's and that's again where we go to that reality that the Bible doesn't speak about these things specifically. It speaks about homosexuality, but it doesn't speak about, you know, it is changing your gender through science okay. But just because it doesn't say it doesn't mean that it doesn't have something to say about how we approach it. And that's where, again, we got to keep going back to the fact that the scripture is sufficient and it may not have the, the clear labeled answer, but it does give us the wisdom needed to come to an answer that glorifies God. Absolutely. So as we see the development of scripture here, you know, we, we see this idea that regular fidei was what the early church used, the rule of faith. Um, Prima Scriptura kind of developed for a period of time, and then Sola Ecclesia, or dual source, Roman Catholic. And it didn't take long for the process to say, no, Sola Scriptura, which is really kind of a modified version of getting back to regular fidei in a lot of ways. But what happens is, as Sola Scriptura comes along, is we have this idea of solo scriptura. Indeed, that's a new one. Yeah, that's defined as scripture is the only authority in all matters. Well, that's true, right? (laughs) <laughs> that's not what we've been saying, though. We, we're saying it's the final authority. Uh, we sometimes like to think that, hey, uh, there's no other authorities in our lives. But, but right, just off the top of your head, what are some other authorities that we have that God has given to us? And we've got the government authorities. We've mm. got the law of science and nature. I mean, I can't go jumping off a building and expect to come out of it okay. Yeah. Um, we've got just our own, our own bodies and our own health that we are kind of beholden to um, within the church body we've got elders that that we regular folk <laughs> submit to um yeah yeah and, and we also have you know you have the parent child yes. relationship so if you're a child you and or you have parents you have an authority there right if uh if you are a member of a local church and i would say if you are a christian and not a member of a local church you're outside the will of god you have an authority in pastors you know the leadership of the church yep. too so there's lots of authorities god's given us um and so but ultimately, we take what those authorities say, and we only uh, obey it as long as they're not telling us to disobey Scripture. That's the only time we have the freedom given to us in Scripture to disobey those authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, number six, by the process of elimination, one must come to the conclusion that Scripture is the final and only infallible authority available to us. Um, and so, there, here's some things. What sola scriptura does not mean is that there are no other sources of authority in our life for the Christian, like we just answered. Yep. Government, parents, uh, spouses to an extent, pastors, those are all authorities God has given us for our benefit and his glory. Number two, each Christian is an autonomous interpreter of the scriptures. It doesn't mean that. We're not autonomous. We're never meant to do that. Being independent of the interpretive community of the body of Christ. Uh, This idea that somehow... One individual just needs the Holy Spirit and a Bible and can understand everything perfectly is, is, a, is a made-up idea. That's solo scriptura, mm-hmm. not sola scriptura. 
And so we, we want to know what the apostles said. We want to know what the church fathers said. Uh, we want to know what other churches are even saying. We want to know what one another are saying. Uh, because if the Holy Spirit really is working in true believers, well, and there are other believers in other parts of the world and in times past, then what they have to say and what's been revealed to them is just as important. Yeah. Right? And we don't want to just come up with something completely new because we'll end up taking our culture, our presuppositions, and read it into the text. Yeah. It's, it is impossible. I don't know if we want to get into it just yet, but um, I mean, it is just, it is impossible to read the scripture without any outside influence. It is possible to read it and be ignorant of your influences, mm. but you are going to be influenced by everything. The problem is that when you are on your own with just your Bible and the Holy Spirit, you have no safeguards of community that God has given us as a gift to make sure that you are truly coming to an accurate understanding of yeah. what it says. It also doesn't, Sola Scriptura also does not mean that tradition is not valuable for understanding matters of faith and practice. It, it very much is, right? right? Uh, a popular one, but a lot of Christians. Uh, follows a tradition is the celebration of Christmas. Uh, Christmas is not a biblical holiday. There's never a command to celebrate it. Yet many Christians do, and there's a long tradition of Christians celebrating it. Now, we should take what the scriptures say and use the wisdom and discernment in the scriptures how we celebrate. Yes. When, we, when we go all consumerism, when we include things like Santa Claus, um, we're adding things to the world to something that we're saying is a Christian holiday, or at least we're practicing. And so, are we really? I mean, let's just be honest. If we want to just have an excuse for getting together and celebrate with family and open presents and yeah. do a lot of shopping and, and think of and make cookies, then let's do it. But let's, and let's take Christ out of it, right? So what you're saying is that the problem comes when we say this is a Christian holiday that is ordained by God and we do Santa Claus and we do all this stuff as though that is a command of God. Yeah. And that's what we don't want to do, but it is fine to do the, the presents, do the cookies, do all that stuff. And if you want to talk about Jesus during it, fine, but don't pretend that they somehow have to, to be in absolute alignment because it's a worldly holiday that we also add a Christian element to. Absolutely. Because we want to take our tradition and submit it to the final authority of scripture. That's where I'm getting at to sum that up. Also, it doesn't mean that there's no institutional authority to which all believers must submit. Um, there is the institution of the church, absolutely, which we've already uh, discussed. Uh, there's a Calvin quote here, but we'll, we'll let you read that on your own. Keith Matheson says this, though. We may say that our final authority is Scripture alone, but not Scripture that is alone. There are other authorities is what we're getting at. Hebrews 13, 17. Here's an example of the institutional authority. Uh, we don't like to quote this verse very often, but obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they will do this with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. And this is in the context of the local church, yeah. submitting to those that God has put as leaders uh, in our church. So, um, as we look at this here, here is our stage of truth, where scripture is at the forefront. And this tradition, our reason, the things that we observe in, in nature, our experiences that we have, our emotions, we take all these and we submit them to Scripture is ultimately what we do. Yep. So if, if it all our tradition goes against Scripture, that tradition goes away. If how we are thinking or, or applying logic to a situation is not in alignment with God's Word, then our reason has to change. We don't change God's Word to fit our emotions, what we've experienced in life, nothing. It's God's Word alone that determines what truth is. And anything else needs to be submitted to that. Other things are still valuable, but only insofar as they fall under the authority of God's word. 
Yeah, the important thing to realize is that all four, all experience, emotion, nature, tradition, reason, are insufficient because uh, the only thing that's inspired, the only thing that's God-breathed from God is really scripture. Now, God gave us the ability to have these things, but there's this little thing called sin that's tainted them. Yeah, that thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. And even nature is tainted by sin. Yeah. Which we sometimes don't realize. And we, nor do we have a full, complete picture of what exactly nature is. We can only observe what we can observe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, we're going to only know that in part. But Scripture, has, God gave us exactly what we need for everything, for faith and practice. And that's why it's our final authority. So, um, sola scriptura, is it dangerous? Very dangerous. What? <laughs> the Catholics had it right all along. We, we've oh, been no. leading people along. <laughs> oh. Well, why do, we just, why do we do this for the last hour and a half? So, um, Martin Luther said this, Unless I'm convinced by testimony from Scripture or by evident reason, for I confide neither in the Pope nor in a council alone, since it is certain they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am held fast by the scriptures, adduced by me, and by conscience is held captive by God's word, and I neither can nor will revoke anything, seeing it is not safe or right to act against conscience. God help me. We started last week's class with this quote, and you know the Roman Catholics would say, listen, if you break away and you have this own interpretation, uh, it's going to be dangerous, and you're going to produce all sorts of private interpretations, and you're going to have all these denominations. The question, though, yeah, that is dangerous, and, and we're seeing the fallout from that. But the fallout from it wasn't any worse than what we had before. Yeah. Now, at least, the truth is out there, and you can find it, right? Yeah. I mean, the problem is that we're putting the perfect word of God in the hands of sinful people. The Roman Catholic Church wanted to protect against that and say, let us hold it and tell you what it says, whereas we would say that it is worth the risk of people coming to bad beliefs because of the overwhelming value that comes when every man and woman is able to read God's word for themselves. Um, you know, I, there was a, a, I don't know if it was a quote or an idea, but, um, you know, every single heresy out there comes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, cults and things like that, I mean, even they will often use the Bible to, to teach things about, you know, all these weird cult beliefs and things like that. So, yes, every heresy does come from the Bible. And that is going to be the result of giving the Bible to people who are untrained, who are unfit, and even unsaved, and letting them interpret it themselves. But, like you said, the alternative is for no one to have it, and to still put it in the hands of sinful people, but then have no authority to check them against. We just have to take their word that they are interpreting it correctly. The Roman Catholic Church took the gospel, which is supposed to be a light to the world, and hid it under a basket. Yes. And the Protestant Reformation came along and said, no, sola scriptura. And they pulled the basket off and said, we're going to let everyone see it. And the risk is worth it. It is. Because now the gospel is at least out there and people can hear the truth and find salvation. And that's so important. It's so key. And another danger in, in a personal sense is that because we have access to God's word, we have a responsibility to use God's word. We can't use the excuse of, well, I don't know what God's word says because I don't have it. You have it. You've probably got it in your pocket right now. Yeah, And so we, we have the ability to read it, and we have the capacity to read it responsibly. And that's what God calls us to do. I mean, how, how can we say that we value it? How can we say that it is sufficient for life if we just read you know, a verse once a week? Or if we just let our pastor tell us what it says? Hmm. I, I mean, if we're doing that, are we any different than what the Roman Catholic Church was fighting for? If we're letting someone else tell us what God's Word says and not 
taking advantage and looking for ourselves, doing like the Bereans did, and, and sought the scriptures to see if what's being said was true. Absolutely. So what you're saying, though, is Uncle Ben from Spider-Man was right. With great <laughs> power, meaning the word of God, comes great responsibility. So because we have such freedom of access, we have a responsibility to read it, right? And apply yes. it to our lives and know what it says. Absolutely. To know what we believe and why we believe it. And, and if, you know, as most Christians, they believe that we're all going to give an account to God someday for how we live this Christian life from our salvation onward. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be an individual who has to give an account where I squandered my, my freedom That's to have the word of God. <laughs> I, 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 want, I want to come before my Lord and I want to hear the words, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, not be the individual who makes it into eternity with Christ uh, just by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. And, and everything I did was burned up because it was all for self, pleasure, and not for Christ alone. And for a lot of people, even getting up there and almost meeting Christ for the first time. <laughs> it, it'll feel spend, like that. They spent a lifetime kind of knowing about this guy who saved them, but never, never truly falling in love with him for who he is as revealed in God's word. Yeah. So, so we have this last thought here to kind of tie things up. Norma Normans said non normata. Say that ten times fast. No, thank you. Uh, a norm of norms which is not normed would be the translation into English. This is a Latin phrase of the Protestant Reformation that stresses the importance of Scripture above all other sources of theology. The Scripture, according to the Reformers, is the standard. It's the normal, right? Against which all other sources for theology must be judged. But this standard cannot be ultimately judged by them. And so, um, in other words, Scripture stands alone as being the normative by which we judge everything else. Yeah. So, so the common phrase today of the Bible is outdated because it doesn't match with our current cultural standards. That's, that's saying that the Bible is under authority of something else. Oh, yeah. And this is saying that, no, culture needs to be compared to Scripture. Our beliefs, our emotions, our experiences, they are held up to Scripture. If Scripture disagrees, Scripture wins every single time because it is not under the authority of anyone or anything else. You know, all the time, you hear people say, well, if Christianity wants to continue to be relevant, they better change to keep up with the times. Right? Uh -huh. You hear the phrase, don't be on the wrong side of history. Well, if you're a Christian out there struggling through that and saying, well, I, I, you know, and that's a concern for you, let me say this. I mean, when you really think about it, if ultimately Christ and God are in control of human history, by adhering to his word, you can never be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. You might be under persecution for holding to the truth, but I'm going to guarantee you a day will come when Christ will return, right? And, and you will not be on the wrong side of history at that point. Everybody who has said that to you your entire life will be on the wrong side of history, and they, they will know it too late. And so we should take comfort in that. So uh, we want to be on the right side of history, and that is adhering to the Word of God. Amen. Well, we made it through the whole thing. We did. That's amazing. And, and only as late as we normally run. And only 10 minutes over. <laughs> well, I'm going to wrap us up in a word of prayer uh, for those who are listening. And um, thank you for, for joining us. But let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're just appreciative for your word. Uh, I pray for everyone listening, all of us, even Ray and I, that we truly would live sola scriptura. That we would submit everything in our lives to scripture being the final authority. Uh, and that uh, through the power of your word and the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would guide us uh, to truth in that as we study it 
and, and illuminate the things that we need to be illuminated so we understand them better and uh, lead us to repentance and where we need to repent so that we can live lives that are, are uh, set apart for you and you alone. And I praise in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 